Good to see such a wonderful fellowship. I want to want to invite you to open up your Bibles to First Peter. First Peter, chapter one. We uh, we took a couple weeks off of First Peter. We're going through the book of First Peter, and we're going to jump back in today. We're going to look at the last four verses. First Peter one, verses twenty two to twenty five. And I just want to, I want to issue a, a challenge this morning that I really want you to have your Bible open or at least be looking at the bulletin on the back with the text. Um, because, you know, God's words are living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It changes our lives. My words don't unless they line up with God's. And so I want to try to show you what I think this text says. And I want you to see it in God's word and not just hear it from my lips and take it at face value. So let's, let's check this out. 1 Peter 1, verses 22 to 25 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, it it was by your word that you spoke everything into existence. It is by your word that you speak life into dead hearts and cause them to live. And that's what we're looking at today. And it is by your word that you transform us and change us as your spirit takes it and applies it to our lives. And so I pray that you would powerfully speak this morning through your word, help me to articulate it clearly in the power of your spirit, and I pray that it would hit us and impact us, and that we would leave encouraged and changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Back to, back at the beginning of First Peter, Peter tells us who he's addressing. He, he, he's addressing a group of people called elect exiles. An exile is someone who's out of place, right? It's a, it's a refugee. It's a, it's a sojourner. It's a stranger in a strange land. And that's who Peter's addressing. He's addressing Christians who are exiles where they're living. And we all are exiles here on planet Earth. We await a heavenly city, We await heaven. He's writing specifically to a group of people who are living in an increasingly hostile culture and in a world that is broken. And so our lives are filled, their lives were filled, and so are ours, with difficulties and challenges. At the very beginning, Peter's talking about how how we all endure various trials, trials of various kinds, and how the test of genuineness of our faith purifies us So we become more like Christ. So he's talking to people who are going to face hardship, specifically from a hostile culture. And he wants them to know how to live victorious lives in the midst of it. Not to to isolate from it, but to live victorious Christian lives in the midst of difficulty and even hostility from the culture around. Remember, Nero is, as Peter's writing this, Nero's the emperor. He was no friend of Christians. Um, he set Rome on fire, and because he needed a scapegoat, he convinced his, his citizens to believe that the Christians did it. And so a great persecution ensued, and many Christians were put to death, 
chased, hunted down, thrown in prison. And so these are the people Peter is writing to. He calls them elect exiles. And the way Peter starts off this book is amazing. In fact, verses 3 to 12 are some of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It starts off by, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's how Peter wants to start off, that's how he wants to encourage his readers. He starts off by expounding the glories of salvation all the way through verse 12. That's essentially what he's doing. Then from verses 13 to the end of the chapter, he, wants, he calls for certain responses from Christians. In, lot, in light of the hostility of the culture you live in or the difficulties you face in life, and you may not feel hostility from the culture, at least not overt hostility, but we all face difficulties. So just in light of the trials and difficulties you face, Peter's saying, I want you to respond certain ways. First, I want you to respond by living a holy life. So verses 13 to 16 talks about that. Then he says, I, want you, I also want you to live in godly fear. Verses 17 to 21. And what we see here today is he says, I want you to live in love. I want you to live in love. In fact, the big idea from today, the, the main point from today, is love one another earnestly from a pure heart. When we face trials, whether it's persecution or just our own personal suffering and trial we're going through, it's very easy to turn inward, inward on ourselves and isolate. And Peter's saying, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is the main idea of the passage. I think everything else in these four verses support this main idea. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. <clears throat> Notice Peter is not giving a suggestion. This is a command. This is a command to all Christians, all true born-again Christians, to love one another earnestly. This is the main idea from our text today. This is what I want to press into our hearts over and over and over again and use the other verses surrounding this one phrase to support it, to uphold it, to help empower us to do it. Um, The preeminence of love. And isn't, isn't love what the Christian life is really mainly about? Isn't that what it's mainly about? I mean, Jesus said the two, the two main commands, right? The first command is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like the first, it's to love your neighbor as yourself, <clears throat> the lawyer who asked him, what is it, what's the greatest commandment? He responded to Jesus like, well, who's my neighbor though? Right? He was looking for a, he was looking for a way to jettison out of that command. He was looking for a way out. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus clearly says, everyone. So love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. That, that, those, those are the main two commands of the Christian life. Jesus goes on to say, on this hangs all of the law and the prophets. On this hangs all that God has said in the Old Testament. Paul echoes this when he says in Galatians, love fulfills the entire law. 
Paul goes even further in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, in other words, in, in so many words, you could have amazing gifts, you can have faith that moves mountains, you can be so sacrificial and so earnest for God that you give up your body to be burned at the stake. And yet, if you don't have love, it doesn't matter at all. You're nothing. It's all pointless. The reason you and I need to hear this, I know that I need to hear this. The reason why I think we all need to hear this is because certainly we're born looking out for number one. A child learns the word mine many years before they learn the word yours. Right? We all do. We all did. And even as Christians... We need to die every day to this kind of thinking. Looking out for number one. Looking out for my own interests. Thinking only about myself. We need to die to this every single day. We need to be reminded of the preeminence of love in our lives. So Peter wants to uh, to, to address his hearers who may be tempted because life is hard. Life is challenging, and the growing hostility of the culture is pressing in around them closer and closer. Some of them might be on the run. Some of them might just be hearing a little bit of this from family members as they're in prison. Certainly some are remembering their family members that have died at the hands of persecutors, and he wants wants to encourage them. He wants to address his hearers who might be tempted to look out for their own interests. He wants to encourage them to love. So here's what verse 22 says. Let me read the the entire verse. Having purified your soul by, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, here's the command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. First, this command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, tells us who we are to love. Who are we to love? Who is it that Peter has in mind? Well, the phrase right before this, this phrase talks about brotherly love. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, says, having purified your hearts for a sincere love of the brothers. A love of the brothers. Peter's saying, love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Earnestly, passionately, fervently. So he's addressing Christians like you and I to love other Christians, those surrounded, those around us right now, those on our right hand and our left, to love them. Certainly we should love all people, but especially Christians, especially those who are in the household of God with us. That's what, P, that's what Paul says in Galatians 6.10. He says, let us do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. Now you might be thinking, the world, what they really need to see is Christians loving non-Christians better. And they do. The world needs to see that. The world needs to see you and I loving non-Christians better, more deeply, more sacrificially. They need to see that. The world needs to see that. But I think Peter would take us aside and say, yes, but the first order of business is for Christians to love other Christians. I heard somebody say recently, I think it was, it might have been my wife. And I apologize if it was you, Hyundai. I forgot it was you. <clears throat> How can we be the light of the world and love people 
outside of our homes if we're not the light of the world and love the people in our homes? And how can we love our neighbor who doesn't know Jesus if we don't love our brother and sister who's going to spend eternity with us? Here's why this is so important. Jesus said in John 13, 35, this is the scene where Jesus takes his disciples aside, he puts on an apron, and he says, sit down, I'm going to wash your feet. Peter remembers this very well because Peter's like, you're not going to wash my feet. You're, you're God, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus had to have a talk with him and rebuked him and said, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part of me. Peter let him wash his feet sat down. Jesus washed their feet. At the end, Jesus said, do you understand what I've done? I've washed your feet. I'm calling you to wash other people. I'm calling you to wash each other's feet. And later on, he goes on to say, by this, by the way that you love one another, by the way Christians love other Christians, the world will know that you're my disciples. Isn't that amazing? By the way that you love other Christians, Jesus says, the world will know you're my disciples. He says something even more amazing in John 17. This is when he's praying to the Father. He says, he prays that the the church, that God's people, that Christians would be one. That they would love each other and be united in love so that the world would know that the Father sent him as the Messiah. Francis Schaeffer, the the great theologian and apologist in the late 20th century, said this. He said, we must never forget that the final apologetic Jesus gave his disciples is the observable love of true Christians for other true Christians. The final apologetic, when all of our arguments, we've given all of them, right? The final apologetic is how true Christians love other true Christians. I mean, even think in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, this, this amazing experience on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit's poured out, and 3,000 are saved. But then later in Acts 2, or maybe it's Acts 3, beginning of Acts 3, it says that um, all the people had all things in common. And if anybody had something in, that they needed, others would provide it for them. And people were even selling houses and properties so they could supply the needs of others. And at the end of it, it says, and the Lord added to the number daily. So who are we to love? We're to love especially all people, but especially, and Peter has in mind, Christians. Even this, the, the, these two words, one another. I think there's like 59 times these, word, these two words are put together in the New Testament. And it's always to show how Believers in Christ are to do life together, right? We're to serve one another. We're to forgive one another. We are to love one another. Second, this command to love, um, it means to love sacrificially. It's a love that sacrifices. The New Testament has three Greek words for love that are translated in English, love. The first is eros or eros. It's where we get the idea of romantic love. The second is phileo. It's where we get the the idea of kind of emotional, brotherly love. Like, hey, brother, you know, shot in the arm and love you, man. 
And the third is agape, which is the highest form of love. And it may not sound like it when I say it, but it is. It's the love of choice. You ever heard someone say before, marriage is about more than love, it's about a choice? Well, hopefully it's not only a choice all the time. Hopefully there are romantic feelings in a marriage. But that's so true. The highest form of love is when one person chooses, it's it's a matter of the will, they choose to love someone else. It's not because of lovey-dovey feelings. It's because they choose to. This is the way that God has loved us. Right? I know we think we're so cuddly and lovable and, you know, but at one time we weren't. And sometimes, and we're still not. <clears throat> Sorry. Sorry to burst your bubble, guys. God loved us when we were still sinners. God loved us even more while we were enemies of his. How did he do that? He didn't have romantic feelings for us. He chose to love us. This word agape is what is in view here. Love, agape, one another fervently or earnestly from a pure heart. Choose to love others. It's the highest form of love. It's to love and give and give and give and expect nothing in return. This is the kind of love God has for us. This love is not unstable like our feelings. We were at a wedding yesterday and um, I heard an an elderly woman say, She got up and said, what do you do? What do you do when you wake up in the morning? And those lovey-dovey feelings for your spouse aren't there. You still love. Right? You still love. So this love that we are commanded to have for other Christians is agape love. It's, It's a... It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that chooses to sacrifice and serve one another. Next, notice it's a, it's a love that's passionate. It is a love that is passionate. It's a love that, um, the word that's used here is earnestly. We don't use the word earnest that often or earnestly. But think of the word fervent. To be fervent is to have, to have zeal. Right? It's a love that burns in zeal. In fact, the, word, the Greek word gives the idea of to, stre- to be stretched out. So to, to stretch yourself in the way that you love others. So you take all this together. It's to love one another. It's to love brothers. It's to love in a sacrificial, self-giving kind of way. It's to love passionately. And it reminds me of the words of Jesus who said, Greater love has no one than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. To love others the way Peter's calling us to love here is, in a sense, to die. It's to lay your life down. That's what John says later in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. John says, um, oh, how does he put it? Let me, let me turn there real quick so I don't misrepresent it. 1 John three sixteen and 17. He says, by this we know love 
that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to lay our lives down. He, he explains what he means by that when he says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet turns his heart away from him, how does God's love abide in that person? So it's to lay our lives down, it's to sacrifice, it's to give of ourselves. It's to give of our lives, it's to give of our blood, sweat, tears, money, time, emotional investment, energy, and our presence. To to draw near to people who we want to show God's love to. Now, if you're thinking that seems hard, Anybody, any, does that sound hard to anybody? We can be honest here, can't we? It seems hard to me. It is hard. In fact, you can't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. It takes a miracle. It takes a miracle to do this. That's what Peter appeals to. In verse 23, look at what Peter says. After he says, love one another earnestly, from a pure heart. Notice what he says. He connects it to something. That's the answer. It's the miracle we're looking for. It's the miracle we need. He says, since you have been born again. Do you hear that? Love one another in this impossible way. You can't do it on your own. Love one another in this self-giving way. Right? Naturally, you're not wired to do this. You're wired to shut yourself off from other people and just stay to yourself and love yourself and take care of yourself. Do this though, Peter says, because you have been born again. You've been born again. Loving the way Peter describes is the fruit of being born again. Do you hear that? It's the fruit that springs from the new life we have in Christ. And it only springs from that. In fact, I would go further. Love, this kind of love, not just romantic love, people have that. Not just a buddy-buddy kind of emotional love, people have that too. Agape love, the sacrificial love for the brothers. This is a necessary evidence of being born again. It's an evidence that you have been born again. The Apostle John, again in 1 John chapter 4, says this. Listen to these words. Beloved, let us love one another. Sounds like Peter, right? For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Whoever does not love doesn't know God. They haven't been born of God. They don't know him. Why? Because it's God's very nature. He is love. And those who are connected to him, those who are born again and born of God, will love. I think, um, you know, I grew up in church and I grew up hearing about being born again for years. And I think it, was, it wasn't until I was in college that I realized how miraculous 
the new birth is. It is not, you guys, it is not, I prayed this little prayer when I was 16 or 8 or 5 or, or I got baptized when I was a baby or I got baptized when I was 8. It is so miraculous. In fact, I'm looking at a room. Most, if not all, are born again. And I am looking at miracles. I'm looking at miraculous things in front of me. So you might say, what do you mean by that? What is the new birth? What is it to be born again? Peter says earlier in chapter 1, he says it's according to God's mercy. Okay, so God did something. God acted, right? It was according to God's mercy, God's gracious work. But what is it to be born again? Well, the Bible does not, you know this, I think. The Bible does not describe you and I as, or anyone, as neutral people prior to coming to Christ. The Bible describes you and I as sinners, as rebels, as enemies of God, as dead in sin. And God came and took people dead in sin and raised them to life. That's what it means to be born again. Now, I'm not sure if you guys got that. Let me say that again, okay? God took a bunch of people here seated. You were dead in sin. You were lifeless. I heard somebody explain it this way. It's not that salvation is a picture of someone flapping, you know, flailing around in the ocean and someone hurls them an inner tube and they grab onto it. Oh, thank you so much for saving me. It's more a picture of someone drowning and their corpse is lying at the bottom of the sea. And someone comes and rescues them and pulls them up and saves them and breathes life back into them. That's what it means to be born again. The Bible describes it in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says it's, we are new creatures in Christ. Old things are gone and new things are coming. This is the new birth. Ezekiel 36 describes it as God taking out a stony heart, a heart of stone. I was talking to someone the other day, just kind of joking. I said, you know, what does a stone do? It's not a trick question. He said, they don't, nothing. You can kick it, you can talk to it, it just doesn't do anything. God took out a stony heart. He put in a heart of flesh. He put his law on our hearts. God did this. He put his spirit inside of us. He put the fear of him inside of us so that we won't turn away from him. This is what it means to be born again. It is not some... It is a miracle. It is miraculous. This is what Peter appeals to. Love one another earnestly, passionately, fervently, from a pure heart. I think he could say from a new heart because that's what you've received is a new heart. Love one another earnestly because you have been born again. Now, I think Peter could stop right here. He could just end there. He could say, you've been born again, therefore love one another. Just do it. But Peter 
doesn't stop there. There's more to the passage. In in fact, Peter, I, I think Peter assumes that knowing how we are born again serves to empower and strengthen us to live a life of love. Um, so I want to spend just a, a little more time looking at the next couple of phrases. And I want to suggest that, that what follows is Peter helping us to build our lives on a solid foundation of hope and assurance, which then frees us to love other people. Hope and assurance frees us to love other people. We've been born again to hope. We've been born again to this rock-solid assurance of God's love and salvation that he's given to us. Look at, look first, it says, we've been born again into God's family and God keeps his kids. We've been born again into God's family and God, God keeps his kids. Look at verse 23, the first part. Let me read the the previous phrase. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. When When we look at the word seed here, this imperishable seed, I think we have two options. Seed can either refer to the word, the word of God is like a seed, right? Jesus teaches that in Matthew 13. The word of God is like a seed. The sower goes and he sows seed, the word of God. Or we can view this as the seed being God himself or God the Holy Spirit. And I actually take the latter view. I've, I've read commentaries that take both views. Good commentaries, by the way. Okay, I take the latter view that this is speaking about the seed of God's spirit. This imperishable seed has been planted in us. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 says this, But to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Listen to this. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Born of God. Jesus, his famous discussion with Nicodemus, I think further illustrates this point. Jesus is talking to this Pharisee, Nicodemus, and he says this weird phrase, you must be born again. Nicodemus, like you and I, had we been there, scratched his head like, I don't get it, right? How can a grown person go back into his mother's womb? Jesus continues speaking with him and says, whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is Spirit. So I think what Peter's saying here is, you have been born again of the imperishable seed of God's Spirit. It's been planted in you. This imperishable seed that will never, ever die. We sing a song here. We haven't sung it for a little while, but there's a, fra- there's a, um, a line from the song that says, I've been born again into your family. And listen, when we are born into God's family, nothing can change that. We are born into his family, we become his kids, we become his children, and nothing, nothing, nothing can change that. Imperishable seed planted in us. We belong to God now and 
forever. He is our Father now and forever. We are His children now and forever. We belong to Him. And that ought to give us great hope and assurance. I love the word that Peter uses here, imperishable. And I think Peter loves it too. He's used it several times, or this idea, several times here in the first, first chapter of 1 Peter. Earlier in the chapter, Peter says, we've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance. So right, this, our Father in heaven has given us an inheritance, and he describes the inheritance this way. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. Later in the chapter, Peter describes this ransom. We've been ransomed, not with perishable things like gold and silver. Those things die. Those things will go away. But with the precious, I would put in there, Peter doesn't, but I just stick in there, imperishable blood of Christ. And here he's saying, you've been born again. You've been born again into God's family not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. The imperishable seed of God's Spirit. So I think Peter's saying, love one another earnestly because you are an imperishable child of God now and forever. You've been born again into God's family now and forever. Furthermore, Peter goes on and says, you've been born again not only of imperishable, imperishable seed into God's family, but you've been born again through the word of God, which will never pass away. You've been born again through the word of God. The spirit, right? There was a certain time when God spoke into our dead hearts. He spoke his word and the spirit came and quickened us to life. But it is through the word of God that we are born again and God's word will never pass away. Verse 23 goes on to say, through the living and abiding word of God. In verse 24 and 25 quotes Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8. He says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then he says this little phrase on the end, and this, this word is the good news that was preached to you. Here's how you and I were born again. We were dead in our sins. Utterly incapable of responding to God. And we heard the word of the gospel. Maybe it's from our parents. Maybe it was at a church service. Maybe it was a Billy Graham crusade when you were a little kid on TV or on the radio or whatever. You were dead in your sins, right? Your heart was like this stone. It wasn't going to respond to God. And God, through the preaching of the word, breathe life into you, planted the life of his spirit in you and caused you to come alive. Peter says you've been born again through the gospel. The gospel is the instrument through which people are born again. When we heard that there's a God who is holy and righteous and that we Human beings are fallen and sinful. And we heard of judgment and God's punishment against sin. And then we heard of Christ and God opened our eyes to see Jesus as a savior and as beautiful and glorious and we trusted in him. This is the word that came to us and through which we were born again. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, 
listen to these words, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus says another place, I think it might be in John, I think it's in John 10, maybe John 9. He says the scriptures cannot be broken. God has spoken the good news to us and those who have responded are those who have been born again. If you've been born again of seed that can never die and through the word of God that remains forever, let me ask you a question. How sure is your salvation? How sure is your salvation? This is not a trick question. If you've been born of imperishable seed, a seed's been planted in you that will never die, and you were born through the word of God that will never pass away, how sure is your salvation? Assurance and an eternal hope is the soil from which love flourishes and grows. This new life that we've received in Christ, this eternal hope that we have in Jesus is the soil from which I would say all the fruit of the Spirit grows. Apart from this assurance, apart from this hope, we languish. We, we become self-absorbed. We, we, just, we, we become anxious, fearful people trying to shore up ourselves rather than free people to love others. <clears throat> hope, an eternal hope, in the new birth, and in the finished work of Jesus, empowers us to love. Someone who is anxious and fearful and kind of self-absorbed about their, li- their, their lives, they don't have the capacity to love. They don't have the capacity to. They're constrained by their fears, by their anxieties. But when you and I become awakened by the eternal hope that we have in Christ. Remember who Peter's speaking to. We all live pretty comfortable lives. The people Peter's speaking to did not. Right? We got, we got, I mean, life is, relative, relatively speaking, life is a breeze for us compared to them. It's an absolute breeze. We're going to go home and sit on our couches this afternoon, right? Maybe take a nap, have a good lunch. Peter's speaking to people. It's not that way. When When I hear these words about an imperishable seed and a living and abiding word of God, I can't help but go back to earlier in the chapter when Peter says, You've been born again to a living hope, living and abiding word of God. You've been born again to a living hope and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What happens when when our eternal hope, and I'm talking about the other world, the world that we're going to enter into either at death or when Jesus comes back, what happens when that becomes bigger? Our hearts are enlarged, right? Right? Our capacity to love sacrificially, 
our capacity to love fervently and passionately grows. What happens when, the, when, a view of the, when, when a view of eternal life becomes constricted and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer? Our hearts shrink. Our hearts shrink. Someone here might be asking, what if I'm an unloving person? What if I'm just coming to the realization today, I am not a loving person? You might ask, does that mean I haven't been born again? This is really important. Does that mean I haven't been born again? It might. It, it really might. I, I mean, if, if loving others is, is, the, is, the, is an evidence, one of the primary evidences of being born again, it might mean that. You might say, well, what do I do then? What do I do then? Don't leave hanging your head. Don't leave utterly defeated. What do I do then? The first verse, I, I haven't even touched the first phrase of this passage. I'm, I'm, temp, I'm tempted just to hear briefly, so I'm, I might just look at it for a moment. The first phrase says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Just very briefly, I think what Peter's saying is having purified your souls by your belief in the gospel. What is it to believe the truth of the gospel? Well, the gospel command is repent and believe, right? So to be obedient to that is to repent and believe. So if you are here today and you're like, I, I have a problem in my heart. I'm not a loving person. What do I do? We go back to the gospel, We go back to the gospel. We go back to the good news of Jesus Christ. Are you believing it? Are you believing it now? Here's the gospel in a nutshell, okay? First Peter, excuse me, first John 4. Let me let me quote a few verses. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested among us that the Father sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. You hear that? God sent his son into the world to manifest his love among us. In this is love, not that we loved God, right? I love the words of a song. It says, if you had not loved me first, I would still refuse you. And that is so true. He loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation. Big theological word. Here's what it means. He sent his son to bear the wrath of God in our place. This is the greatest clearest, deepest, highest, widest understanding of God's love for us. You believe that? Repent and believe it. Repent and believe. Here's what I don't want you to do. Don't rest on something you did a long time ago as assurance of salvation. Rest today on the finished work of Christ. 
Rest today on the finished work of Christ and then get up tomorrow and do the same thing. And then get up next year and get up, and, and 70 years into this thing, you do the same thing, right? I mean, this chair right here, what do I do? Just sit down and rest in it. Rest in the finished work of Christ. And let his love wash over your soul. And then as John said, Beloved, if God so loved us, let us love one another. Or as Peter says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I love you. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your spirit. That we've been, those who have been born again, have been born again of the spirit through the gospel, through the living and abiding gospel of Jesus Christ, which empowers us and frees us, especially when we have this hope and this assurance that we belong to you. You are our Father. We are your children, now and forever. To love others, I don't lose anything. I only gain. We only gain to give ourselves to love others. Because we have an eternal reward that is so glorious. Father, I pray that you would press us upon our hearts, that we would become more and more free from ourselves and our circumstances to love those around us, especially the brothers, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, I pray you be glorified in it. And God, some who walked in here today and they're feeling conviction over this word, I pray that you'd give them the gift of repentance and faith. God, that you'd work in their hearts that they would see Christ and even right now, as, I, as I'm praying, that they would rest in Jesus and his finished work. In his name I pray. Amen. You are you're dismissed.